0: If you missed part one, I encourage you to go to our website or go to our podcast and listen to it. Jasmine set the stage well. Uh, Like all stories, the big story follows a certain arc, a certain pattern. A story begins with exposition. This is where we get a feel for the setting and the characters. Who is the story about? Where does it take place? In the biblical story, the exposition is called creation. The main character is God, and God is good. He's creative, he's intricate, he's beautiful, and he creates a good world that's, that's beautiful and intricate. And then he creates humans, and he steps back, and he calls us very good. In fact, he says, you remind me of me. Like God, we are creative and intricate and beautiful, and God gives us agency and authority to rule over the creation in a way that helps all of its parts flourish. But of course, it begs the question, if creation is so good, why is there so much wrong in the world? Today, we're going to talk about the crisis point of the big story, what theologians call the fall. And it's essential that we understand what the fall is all about if we want to understand what's wrong in the world and what's wrong in our own lives. It's also essential that we understand what the fall is all about if we want to have a realistic hope. If we want to have a way forward, not only for coping with the challenges and the pain that we experience, but for, for dealing with the brokenness in our own lives. All right, let's dive back into the story. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's kind of an odd scene, isn't it? Forbidden fruit, talking serpents. We had lots of questions about this. But for starters, why does God create a tree loaded with a tract of fruit, and then tell Adam and Eve not to eat it. Why the tree? Well, let's back up. Here's what what we know so far. We know that God is good. We know that creation is good. We know that humans are good. We're God's masterpiece, his mic drop. We image God, not just through our creativity, but, but through our agency and authority, but always under God's authority. We were created to reflect God, not to be God. God is still God. So what does this have to do with the tree? Well, Tim Keller says something really profound. He says, God was saying to Adam and Eve, my children, I am God, and your life is a gift, and this world is a gift, and I want you to live as if I am God, and you are living by my power. I want you to live as if this world is a gift and it's not your possession to do whatever you want with. Therefore, don't eat from the tree. This is your chance. You can either choose to treat me as God and to treat your life and the world as if it belongs to me and therefore you have to use it as I direct. Or you can put yourself in my place and act as if your life is your own and the world is yours. I can be God Or you can be God. You decide. Maybe this video clip will help. (laughs) Whoa! Mermaid off the port bow! Ariel! Whoa, what a swim. Scuttle, look what we found. Yeah, we're in the sunken ship. It was really creepy. Human stuff, huh? Hey, let me see. <coughs> oh, look at this. Wow, this is special. This is very, very unusual. What? What is it? It's a dingle hopper. Humans use these little babies straighten their hair out. See, just a little twirl here and a yank there on like Yeah, I got an aesthetically pleasing configuration of hair that humans go nuts over. <laughs> a dinglehopper. What about that one? Ah, this. I haven't seen in years. This is wonderful. A banded, bulbous snarf flat. Oh. Now, the snarf Dates back to prehistorical times when humans used to sit around and stare at each other all day. Got very boring. So, they invented this snarf flat to make fine music. Allow me. Music. It's stuff. Oh, the concert. Oh, my gosh. My father's gonna kill me. The concert was today? Maybe you can make a little planner out of it or something. Uh, I'm sorry. I've got to go. Thank you, Skettle. Any time, sweetie. Any time. Oh, I love that scene. If you've seen the movie, you know that later on, uh, after Ariel becomes a human, she's at this big fancy dinner, and, and there's a fork. And she picks it up, she starts combing her hair with it, and everyone thinks that she's totally crazy. But here's the point. Created things are created with a purpose. And the creator determines the purpose. And the purpose of a fork is to help with eating. And your purpose is to live and love and serve and rule under God's rule. And trusting all the while in his goodness and in his love and his ability to have everything under control. When we reject our purpose, when we try to usurp God, unlike Scuttle, it's not a comedy, it's a tragedy. The tree was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to let God be God. According to the big story, our real problem is not that we break the rules. Our real problem is that we put ourselves in the place of God. So, who's the serpent? Well, he's Satan. He's crafty. He comes to the woman and says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's he doing? He's casting doubt on God's words. And the woman responds beautifully. She says, Yeah, that's what he said. Don't eat from that tree. If you do, you'll die. And Satan responds, saying, You will not die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to the serpent's logic knowledge is good, power is good. God is obviously trying to deprive you of these good things. Therefore, God must not be good. You can't trust him. Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The snake slithered up to Eve. Does God really love you? If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wonders. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispers. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave it. It would live on in every human heart, whispering in every one of God's children, God doesn't love you. What does Satan attack? He attacks the relationship. The relationship that facilitates shalom, that makes everything flourish. The temptation in the garden was not to break God's rules, but to stop trusting in God's love. There's a scene near the end of The Lord of the Rings where where Gollum casts doubt on Sam's motives for traveling with Frodo on his quest. Sam has been a faithful friend and companion, but Gollum knows that he has to get rid of Sam if he wants to get the ring. So he lies to Frodo. He tells him that Sam intends to take the ring. And that Sam has selfishly and recklessly eaten all of their food. And Frodo believes the lie. And he tells Sam to go home. And Sam looks at Frodo heartbroken with tears in his eyes. He points to Gollum and says, he's poisoned you against me. And that is what the serpent does to the human race. He lies. He casts doubt upon God's goodness. He tells us that we can't trust God. That we would be better off going it alone. And we believe the lie. And it poisons us. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke writes, by Adam and Eve's failure to trust the goodness of God's character and the truthfulness of his word, they disobey and instantaneously fall from their state of bliss in the garden into a tragic state of irreversible sin and death and banishment from the garden. Uh, the famous developmental psychologist Eric Erickson says that the very first stage of a person's uh, psychosocial development is the trust stage. Because when you're an infant, you're dependent on other people for everything. And so the question is, can you trust your caregivers to keep you safe? Can you trust them to feed you when you're hungry, to change you when you're wet, to comfort you when you're scared? And he says that if a child learns early on that he or she can't trust their caregivers because they were abused or neglected or abandoned, It will make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to trust ever again. And their early experiences become the taproot of all kinds of pathologies. Now, Tim Keller makes an interesting observation. He says, I'm not a psychologist. I have no idea whether Eric Erickson is right or not. But it's really weird that Genesis says this is exactly what happened in the beginning of the human race. When we were in our infancy, we believed the serpent that we can't trust God, that we can't trust his love. And then Keller goes on to say there are people right now working themselves to death in their jobs because they're trying to prove to themselves and to everybody else that they're valuable because they don't trust the love of God. And I would add there are people right now staying in unhealthy relationships because they've accepted the love that they think that they deserve because they don't trust the love of God. And there are people right now who have to be the center of attention, who have to have nice things, who have to have everyone's approval in order to mask their insecurities because they don't trust the love of God. And that's what the tree is about. Do we trust that God has our good in mind? Do we trust God to run the universe well? Do we trust that if we let God be God and humbly play our part, we'll be okay? More than that, we'll flourish. Let's make this even more practical. Why do we lose sleep? Why do we worry? Why do we tense up? Why is it so hard to rest? Because we have an idea about how life should go. And we're afraid that God will get it wrong. That he won't run things the way they need to go. And because of that mistrust, we put ourselves in the place of God. We say, I can't trust God. I have to do it myself. Why is it so hard to forgive people? Why is it so hard to let things go? Because we think we know what people deserve. And we want to see them get what they deserve. Why? Because we don't trust God's justice. We don't trust God's mercy, so we put ourselves in the place of God and decide for ourselves how other people should have to suffer for the wrongs that they've done. Don't you see how much we suffer? (laughs) Because we believe the lie that God can't be trusted, that we would be better off on our own. Here's another question. What exactly is sin? Sin in the Bible is a relational term. It's not about breaking rules. It's about failing to honor relationships. So vertically, sin is taking the place of God. It's pushing God off to the side. Say, I'll take it from here. What about horizontally? What about our relationships with other people? Well, let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, "Who is it that you have, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There's just a ton going on here, but let's start with verse 12. The man said, The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. In other words, hey, don't look at me. It was her. Horizontally. Sin is a willingness to throw anyone under the bus to justify yourself. Your life to serve mine. When we doubt God's love, we start to doubt all love. When we decide that we can't trust God, we start to wonder if we can trust anybody. So we tell ourselves, I need to pull you down so that I can feel better about myself. Relationships were supposed to be all about service. But now they're about power. Instead of asking, how can I serve my neighbor, we ask, well, what's in it for me? Our willingness to throw our neighbor under the bus to justify ourselves, to prove that we're right, to prove that we're better, is the root of all the conflict and all the violence on this planet, from theft to racism to abuse to war. Our chronic insecurity leads us to justify ourselves. At our neighbor's expense. Christians call this the doctrine of original sin. This idea that we're hardwired for selfishness and cruelty. It's not the environment, it's not our parents, it's not poverty or a lack of education. We are hardwired, every one of us, to justify ourselves at the expense of others, to use people. Now, this doesn't mean that human beings are incapable of goodness. We're still created in the image and likeness of God. God's grace is still at work in us, often restraining some of our worst impulses. We're still good, but the evil is in deep. I think of these two scenes, creation and fall, as being like bifocal lenses, helping us to see and understand both the evil and the good that we see around us. The doctrine of original sin says that we're all hardwired for selfishness and cruelty. And this is true across every culture, every race, every class, genders, everybody. Now you might be thinking, I'm not sure I like this doctrine. It just seems like really bad news. Yeah, but here's why we need this doctrine. And maybe, maybe we need it now more than ever. Because we always demonize certain classes, certain groups of people. The left does it. The right does it. Whenever we talk about what's wrong with society, what do we hear? It's the elites. It's middle America. It's white evangelicals. It's Mexicans and immigrants. It's old white men, right? And we all do it. We all throw huge groups of people under the bus because we're hardwired to, because we defend ourselves. We defend our tribe by blaming, by demonizing other people. But the doctrine of original sin makes it impossible for people on the left to say, it's them, not us. And it makes it impossible for people on the right to say, it's them, not us. The doctrine of original sin creates a radical democracy of sinners. Tim Keller says, if you believe in original sin, then nobody is better than anybody else. You can't look down your nose at a criminal or a drug dealer and say, Now there's a sinner, not me. Because the doctrine of original sin says that the same seeds of that kind of behavior are in your heart. Now, maybe they didn't sprout because you had better options or you had more to lose. But the fact of the matter is that you are no better than the person on death row. Here's why we need this doctrine. Here's why we need to understand the fall. Because a belief in original sin destroys self-righteousness. Once you realize that you're no better than anyone else. And that everyone on this planet is simultaneously fearfully and wonderfully made. In the image and likeness of God and yet fatally flawed by sin. Including you. Once you understand that then you can stop looking down on people. And you can stop demonizing certain groups of people. Our society right now is so divided. Certainly more so today than any other time in my lifetime. And one of the reasons is that we don't don't understand original sin. We don't understand the world's brokenness is both out there and in here. G.K. Chesterton was a brilliant British writer right around the the turn of the 20th century. Um, and, And during his lifetime, the London Times sent out an inquiry... To a bunch of famous authors asking them, what's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton responded simply, he said, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now that is humility. Born of seeing one's life against the backdrop of the big story. Born of a deep awareness of the stain of sin that covers not just my enemy, but me that the dividing line of good and evil runs down the middle of my own heart. Chesterton also said Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea, original sin. But when we wait for its results, they are pathos and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity for only with original sin can, can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. In other words, only when we learn to see our neighbor through the bifocal lenses of creation and fall can we see our common humanity and our common goodness and our common selfishness. And when you see that, then you can begin to cultivate the humility and the empathy that our world desperately needs. Tim Keller says, if you really grasp the doctrine of original sin... It creates a solidarity between you and every single person, even the most wretched people you see on the streets. No longer do you say, oh, who are these people? Because you are these people. Take a look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's going on here? Remember, right right back toward the end of Genesis chapter 2. It says that Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. It's a great moment. But now in this world of distrust and insecurity, they realize that they are naked and they cover themselves. Why? Why? Because they no longer felt safe. Once their relationships moved from being uh, service-based to being power-based, they knew intuitively that they could no longer afford to be vulnerable with each other. So they hid. They covered themselves. We still do this. We still hide our true selves. We can't bear to have other people know who we really are. We have to control what they see if we're going to maintain power in the relationship. And and deep down inside, we're kind, of, we're kind of torn about this, right? Torn between our insecurity and our need to be in control of the way people see us, and, and yet, at the same time, our innate desire to be fully known and fully loved without fear or shame. The band Google Dolls captures this tension perfectly. They sing, And I don't want the world to see me Cause I don't think that they'd understand when everything's made to be broken, I just want you to know who I am. And most of the time we find it very hard to imagine that if we uncover ourselves, if we stop hiding, if we let someone see our true selves, that they'll still accept us. They won't run away. So we hide. We craft an image A carefully constructed persona. We control what other people see. Look at verse 10. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I didn't want God to see me either, Adam says. This is a gut-wrenching moment in history, isn't it? I mean, good grief, God created Adam. He loves him. He gave him life. He gave him the garden. He gave him Eve. And now joyful freedom is given away to fear. God has become one from whom he has to hide. Why? Because in his fallen imagination, he sees God as a threat to his autonomy. As a threat to his illusion of being in control. And we still do this, don't we? We still hide from God. Sometimes we hide from God by being very, very bad. And by doing whatever we want as if life and truth and goodness were ours to define. Sometimes we hide from God by being very, very good. Pete Scazzaro warns that we can use God to run from God. By filling up our lives with lots of spiritual activities. So that we become too busy to have a relationship with God. Too busy to attend to the parts of our lives that God wants to change. We are by nature hiders. But God is by nature a seeker. When Adam and Eve are hiding, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That that verb to walk in the Hebrew connotes fellowship, friendship. God's not there to babysit, He's not there to spy on Adam and Eve or to supervise their behavior, He's there for a relationship. And notice he starts asking them questions, right? Where, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is it that you have done? Is God seeking out information with these questions? Of course not. He already knows the answers. He wants a relationship. He's intervening, he's counseling them, he's offering them a path that will lead to peace, to reconciliation, and restoration. We hide. God seeks. I want to park it here for a second because I don't want us to miss this. The fall came about not by an action, but by a belief. It's not that they ate the fruit. It's that they stopped believing that God was good, that God was trustworthy, that God loved them. And the solution, the way forward is not action, but belief. You'll never repair your relationship with God by trying really, really, really hard to please him. By dazzling him with your good works or your moral performance. No. The only way back is to believe that he's good. To trust him and to lean on him to the point of vulnerability. To rest in his love. Friends, don't hide from the God who is seeking you. Come out into the light of day. He's not looking for you in order to condemn you. He's come to rescue you and give you life. There's another detail in this story that gives us hope. God is explaining to Adam and Eve all of the ramifications of the fall, all of the relationships that have been shattered, including their relationship with nature. But in the middle of that, God says something to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Imagine a family's walking on a path in the woods. And suddenly there's a snake, a deadly snake, appears in the middle of the path. And sensing the danger, one of the family members immediately stomps on the snake, killing it. But in the process, is bitten. God is saying that one of Eve's descendants is going to destroy sin and death. And suffer a fatal wound in the process. A human being is going to come into the world, and he's going to destroy sin and death, and in the process, he's going to lose his life. I wonder who that could be. See, the first Adam should have done something like that, right? He shouldn't have just stood there and watched the serpent destroy his family. The first Adam should have stomped on the snake, but the second Adam will. See, in the first garden, God said to Adam, Obey me about the tree, and you will live. And he didn't. But many years later, in a different garden, a much, much tougher garden, God said to the second Adam, Obey me about the tree, and you will die a terrible death. And he did. Today, as we celebrate communion... We come before God, we confess our tendency to take his place and to throw our neighbor under the bus to justify ourselves, but we also come rejoicing because of what God has done for us in Christ to deal with our sin and to bring us back into relationship with himself. Elders, would you come forward as we prepare to celebrate this meal? The night he was arrested, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and given thanks, he poured it out. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the final verse of Genesis chapter 3, it says, after God drove the man out, He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And that means that nobody can get back into the garden unless they go under the sword. Well, the prophet Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, he will be cut off from the land of the living. Jesus Christ went under the sword. He opened a new and living way back into the presence of God. He went ahead of us, and the sword slew him. So, here's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to say, I'm going to try really, really hard to live a good life. To be a Christian is to say, Father, cover my sin with what Jesus Christ has done for me. And and cover it by forgiving me. And by reworking in my heart, reengineering my heart so that I can want and love what you want and love. When my fear and my insecurity get the best of me, I try to justify myself and control other people. But may the truth of what Jesus has done for me set my heart free so that I can start to serve others.